Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined again by historian Gilbert Valentine. Thank you for talking with all of us today. Good to be with you again, Alex. We're looking forward to some further conversation. Me too. And this is the third in a three-part series focused on your book, Ostriches and Canaries. And we spent um, the first conversation talking about former General Conference President Robert Pearson, and then we talked about Andrews University President Richard Hamill, and now we're going to talk about a really interesting character, a historical figure, in your story, Siegfried Horn, and we're going to draw some kind of conclusions based on our three-part conversation as well. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. And I think it might be interesting to talk about the Siegfried Horn we know publicly, and then the Siegfried Horn you got to know by reading his diary. So let's talk about the public Siegfried Horn, famous, influential, legendary archaeologist, and Adventist intellectual. Who, who do we know? Well, thank you, um, Alexander. Yeah, what we know of Siegfried Horn is, is very impressive. He was a hugely respected, highly respected um, scholar and uh, personality in the Adventist church. And beyond the church, he was highly respected in the field of biblical archaeology. Um, we know him in the church through his very famous book, The Spade Confirms the Book, um, in which he had written this popular level uh, book on, on how archaeology helps us to have confidence in scripture. And uh, that book, I think, went through a couple of revisions and was translated in a number of, of uh, other, other languages um, and helped to establish his, his reputation as someone who could speak with confidence, someone who was very knowledgeable. He was uh, hugely informed in the field of archaeology and hugely respected from, from archaeologists outside the church as well. Um, we also know him because he taught at the seminary. He was probably one of the most influential teachers in the seminary. Seminary students really respected him from 1951 on, I think, to when he retired in about 1976. Um, and uh, he also published many articles in the Ministry magazine and in the Review. And I guess his most significant contribution to Adventist thought was his participation in the Bible commentary. He was there right at the very beginning when it was being kind of proposed. He was an enthusiastic supporter of it. He wrote large portions of it. I mean, he, he's the author of much of Genesis, much of Exodus, Ezra, Nehemiah. And uh, so he, he's had a tremendous impact in the church in that way. 
and also he's the the, the largest the, the the author that contributes most to the Bible dictionary which um, it's number nine I think in the Bible commentary series or maybe it's number eight but he was the one who proposed that dictionary and uh, the Review and Herald was a little reluctant to put his name on it he refused to participate unless his name was on it <laughs> as the major contributor <laughs> but we're indebted to him uh, as a church because of this um, input into uh, building confidence in Scripture and helping us to understand the wider world of the background of Scripture. You've detailed sort of his impact both at a, at a, at a scholarly level in and outside the denomination and also um, in and outside of the academy. Can you talk a little bit about the man himself, what his personality was like, why students really enjoyed his classes? Yeah, um, Siegfried Horn spoke confidently and with authority in the classroom. He was German, he came, had a German background um, and knew his material um, thoroughly. So students never got very close to him because he wasn't a personable person in that sense, at least to students. He was to his colleagues, colleagues related well to him, but he was a bit of a martinet, I think, in the classroom, um, a bit intimidating to students. Um, but uh, for his colleagues and, and other teachers, I mean, he was dean of the seminary for a while, and his, his fellow teachers responded to him, to him very warmly. Another dimension to Siegfried Horn was that he was intensely curious about everything. Mm. Um, he, he noted it in his in his diary and in his journals um, just about every everything he saw and and that caught his attention. And part of that intense curiosity was was his interest in people. So he would talk to people on the street to someone sitting beside him in the plane or on the train or someone in the hotel that he was staying at. He, he enjoyed conversation. Mm. And because he was so knowledgeable and so curious about everything in life, he was widely informed. So falling into conversation about anything, he was able not only to contribute to conversations, but he was able to winnow from conversations new things that, that sort of enthused him and, and uh, added to his stock of knowledge. Um, so I think his colleagues appreciated that about him. Um, and yet, in, in another way, he was very cautious about what he said in public. Um, I think church administrators appreciated him because of his wisdom and his maturity and his statesmanlike <laughs> approach to, to life and to church affairs. And yet he was always rather cautious that he didn't say too much in public in that way. Mm. Another thing that, that impressed me as I got to know Siegfried Horn was his intense loyalty to the church. Um, he, uh, his mother became an Adventist. No, yes, his mother became an Adventist before she married his father. Um, she had done three years of uh, ministerial training at Friedensau um, before the war and became a coal porter 
In fact, she baptised the man who became Siegfried Horn's father. <laughs> they later got married. Um, and then in 1914, as the war was breaking out, um, Siegfried Horn had lost his father in an um, aeroplane accident. His father was a test pilot um, of test planes, sort of for the for a German company um, in uh, in Germany. And uh, so he died when uh, Siegfried was about five years of age. His mother then was invited, just as the war was breaking out, to go into ministry. And from that time, from 1914, she carried credentials as a minister. She was never ordained, but she was asked to look after churches, <laughs> um, many churches, in fact, in Leipzig for quite a while during the war. Right through until 1979, her name was still in the Adventist Yearbook as a credentialed minister, missionary. And Siegfried Horn took great pride in that. He, he was just so indebted to his mother for what she had taught him about the church, even though she was very strict, not afraid of corporal discipline, <laughs> not afraid of, of really putting the heavy on, on the kids. <laughs> and, uh, but growing up even in that very strict fundamentalist environment, he appreciated it, even though he describes later in life how he moved away from that fundamentalist upbringing to a more liberal, a broader approach to understanding the church and understanding life. And that was quite a journey for him that he reflected on and, and noted in some detail in his, in his journal. Hmm. Um, let's jump into this um, gold mine I have for a historian, the diary of one of the main characters in your story. How did you end up with Siegfried Horn's diary? <laughs> I wish I had it, but I don't. But I did give the privilege of reading it. And mm -hmm. I do count it as a real privilege. It was a, a fascinating learning experience for me. Um, I first uh, learned about the diary when I was working on some articles for the encyclopedia about um, the background of the Glacier View Conference. And I wondered whether uh, Siegfried Horn had actually attended the Glacier View Conference and asked my colleague, uh, Larry Geraghty, if he knew. And if he had been at the conference or if he had been reading up before the conference, did he make any comments about it that Larry knew about? So Larry went to the diary. Larry actually holds the diary. It's a multi-volume set of, of three or four hundred page books, actually. Wow. That uh, Horn began writing, I think, back in his Friedensau days as a student and kept going right through until just near his death. Well, Larry went to the diary for 1980 and uh, discovered that Horn did know about the issues of Glacier View. He'd in fact been asked to read Ford's book on Daniel and gave it a full clearance so that Southern Publishing could go ahead with it. And he suggested when he was writing in his diary that he perhaps had even gone further than Ford in the, the book of Daniel, in his interpretation of the book of Daniel. Although he said, you know, once you get into interpreting the book of Daniel and once you get into things like Antiochus Epiphanes, you've, you've got to be very careful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was very wary of it. but. Um, we also discovered from Larry's reading that um, Neil Wilson 
had talked to Horn about the problems that they were facing with Ford over the Glacier View issue, and that Wilson had appreciated how Horn had not gone public on the things that he knew that uh, differed with Adventist teaching or Adventist interpretation. So Horn scribbled in his diary, (laughs) they appreciated the fact that I kept my mouth closed and kept things to myself. So Larry told me this, um, and it it formed part of my interpretation of the uh, Glacier View event. Well, it was after that that I was um, writing this book on Pearson that Larry said, look, you might find some other things in the diary that relate to the Pearson era. Why don't you have a look through yourself? So he gave me the set of diaries beginning in 1951. So I haven't read all of them, but um, because he began writing way back in, uh, as I mentioned, when he was just uh, in his study years at Friedenshaw. But from when he joined the seminary, right through until the end of Pearson's era and beyond until his retirement years. I was able to read all of those volumes, make notes, um, and learned a great deal about several things, actually. (laughs) Um, Inside reports of committees that um, Horn attended that didn't get into the minutes, but that were discussed in amongst the members of the meetings anyway, and Horn's recollection of those in his diary, um, his own reflections on on things that were happening on campus, his own reflections on his own spiritual journey. And I came to appreciate Horn really as somewhat of an Adventist Renaissance person who was broadly informed, deeply loyal to his church, disagreed with his church on some important issues, but believed that the church had a mission, church had been good to him and had shaped his life and he he really valued the values that the church stood for and was willing to support those values and and that sense of gospel sharing that the church had been called to even at the same time as he felt uncomfortable with some of the things that the church wasn't able to handle yeah so i I found it a very very interesting informative read yeah can you talk a little bit about the ways that you found uh, him privately expressing a sentiment that he didn't publicly express, uh, perhaps uh, over some uh, conflict that the seminary and the larger university were having with Pearson? Yeah. Um and, and maybe a good example is the 6,000-year problem yeah. or, or chronology. Chronology was, was Horn's, um, one of his major contributions to the church. Um, that's how he became interested in, in Old Testament history to some degree. Um, the, the problems of the, the Ezra period, the problems of the Nehemiah period. Um, and he became quite the scholar in those areas. But he also... Um, had to confront the 6,000-year problem time and time again. And it's interesting, in his diary, he has this heading in one section, the 6,000-year age of the earth craze. (laughs) (laughs) So he puts that in as a heading and then talks about how during the 25 years of his teaching, 
on five continents, he had never allowed himself to be pinned down in regard to what the age of the earth was. Wow, that's <laughs> um, great. And he said that on many, many occasions, students had tried by various means to push me into a corner and attempt to get him to commit on uh, the act, the point of, of um, the age of the earth and when, when life had been created. And he studiously avoided that. Um, and he, he avoided it by saying, my field of history begins with, with the time of Abraham. That's when Old Testament history begins. <laughs> and I'm knowledgeable about that. Beyond that, it's not my field. <laughs> <laughs> now, he knew, of course, that uh, Egyptian history extended back way before um, what we would normally think of as, as Egyptian history. And he'd been to the Ovali, the gorge in Kenya, where they had been excavating um, these paleolithic, uh, paleo skulls. And, mm -hmm. and he'd talked to um, the people that were, the paleologists who were there, the world famous pale paleologists. So he knew about that. And he had been to, uh, was it Yellowstone National Park or maybe Sequoia National Park, where he'd seen these um, logs lying on the ground um, that, well, very old trees standing up and then uh, petrified logs on the yeah. ground. And he could count tree rings and had read <laughs> the literature on tree rings <laughs> that took us back thousands of years. He talked to uh, Hamill over lunch about the ice ages and the need to allow somehow for decades of thousands of years just to accommodate ice ages. So he, he knew all that. And yet in the classroom, he would refuse to be cornered <laughs> on saying that this, the earth is only 6,000 years old, even though students pushed him on the Ellen White statements. So on that kind of thing, he was, he was very cautious, mm -hmm. I guess, because he wanted to preserve his ability to keep teaching ministerial students. And he wanted to continue his ability to have influence in the church, didn't want to burn bridges. So he had to live with, with this knowledge that he had, problems he couldn't resolve to himself quietly or in public, and was happy to live with the problems. That's how he expressed it in his diary. He had just learned to live with problems he couldn't resolve. Um, Hmm. Well, that was uh, clearly um, a strategy of self-preservation, and that um, functions as a corollary with some of the sad stories that you tell in Ostriches and Canaries of scholars who did speak up and did express a little bit more of what their own academic training had caused them to believe and in doing so became the target of Pearson and others, uh, sometimes causing them to lose their job. So, you know, he was, um, sounds like he was politically um, adroit here in keeping his personal thoughts personal. As you look at it, was it ultimately 
um, a a thing that he maintained or after he retired in 1976, did he become uh, a little bit more public about his beliefs even after he was done, you know, serving um, the, the students in the classroom? There was only once, I think, where he felt able to go into print with an article that was going to argue that the genealogies were not chronometers mm -hmm. um, and that we couldn't use them. Larry Geraghty had published an article uh, talking about the usefulness of genealogies as um, keeping as time markers and that, in fact, they had no purpose with that at all. And uh, Siegfried Horn had been called out to defend Larry on that. Larry, uh, Horn was a little sad that Larry felt he had to go public on that. Um, but it was actually going public on it that prompted Horn to be a little more public on one occasion when he was speaking to last year faculty and last year students and was a little more open on the problems of, of the six, that the 6,000 year idea posed to us. And Ken Vine asked him if he might publish that that talk that he gave at last year. And Horn thought about it for a while and then said, well, I've only got a year to retirement. And it, what have I got to lose now? If I lose my job, it, it does, and he was dean of the seminary at the time. <laughs> if I lose my job, then it, it, it doesn't really matter at this point in my life. So he gave permission for Ken Vine to publish the article. Yeah, that turned out that it didn't get published. I think some logistical problem uh, with with the venue that Ken Vine was was trying to organise, and it didn't actually happen. So I don't think after that that Horn went went public with his information. Um, he, he kept it to himself, and I've I've often thought about his. Um, he he felt bad about having to be hypocritical at times. He does reflect that in his in his diary. Hmm. That, that he wrestled with that, and yet, having wrestled with it, he felt that he was still able to live with his conscience on it. So, you know, it was something that, that he didn't push off easily. It was something that, that he reflected on and, and thought about a good deal. I, I wonder whether his time in the, um, concent not concentration camp, but uh, incarcerated as a prisoner of war um, during the war years may have shaped his survival instincts um, more sharp, uh, more finely. Mm. He tells a story in his diary mm -hmm. of how um, he was in Indonesia eight years as a missionary, working for the Dutch, con uh, well, Dutch East Indies, it was called at that time. Um, and he was a bit, uh, felt a little bit in difficulty about his German citizenship and was in the process of taking up Dutch citizenship, would you believe? because he'd married a Dutch lady. Um, he'd, he'd spent his first couple of years, in fact, in, in the Netherlands as a pastor, then went out for these eight years in, uh, in the Dutch East Indies, in Indonesia now. And then in May 1940, Hitler invaded the Netherlands. And within 24 hours, he was a prisoner of war. And uh, for the next six and a half years, first period under Dutch 
um, control and then later in his imprisonment under British control. So he began his long years of World War II imprisonment under a hostile Dutch military. Uh, officers, he said, who hated Germans because mm. they had seen Germans attack their homes and kill their relatives in the Netherlands. And they just wanted to make life miserable as they could for the Germans in mm. under their care. And there were hundreds, maybe thousands of them in, in the prison of war camp. And uh, the other difficulty that Horn faced was that amongst his German compatriots in the prison of war camp, there were people who fiercely defended Hitler and those who didn't. Ooh, interesting. He was anti-Nazi, but there were many, many in the camps quite close to him who were pro-Nazi. And he found himself at some time before he went to, before he was transferred to India, right towards the end of his Dutch imprisonment, um, he found himself getting into arguments with his German compatriots in the prison. Hmm. And at one time he said some uh, intemperate things about Hitler. And several days later, some one person who was very pro-Hitler took him aside and said, listen, Horn, you better be careful. You're developing a target on your back. We've already dispatched of one anti-Nazi person in this prison. You'll be next unless you hold your tongue. Wow. So he got that message fairly clearly and had to live for the rest of the time there before he was transferred to India with, with the intensity of, of sort of many people around him having to live in close quarters with them, bunked together, <laughs> mess tents together, and yet looking over his shoulder all the time. I think that might have had a life, lifelong, uh, made a lifelong impression on him to some degree. Yeah, it's incredible to think that what he started at the seminary in 1951. So it was, you know, just a few years later after coming out of uh, a concentration camp or prison like environment mm -hmm. that was heavily ideological. He ends up at the seminary. Um, what an amazing, uh, amazing um, change of venue. Yes. He <laughs> notes in his diary, he records in his diary, one Sabbath afternoon meeting at the seminary that he was involved in. I think this was the late 60s. And he was uh, involved with both Hamill and Charles Wichaby on a panel talking with... Um, the famous author who taught ethics at University of Chicago, who had written a book on life in a prison of war camp. Um, hmm. I forget the guy's name, but he was the teacher of, um, of Fritz Guy. Langley? Not Langley. <laughs> I've got the wrong name. Um, anyway, he developed a high reputation um, for teaching about the, the difficulty of ethics. Hmm. These three participants on the panel had all been um, involved in life in a prisoner of war camp, living under hostile authorities. And the whole panel that afternoon was reflecting on the challenge, the ethical challenge of, of living with oneself and living with hostile 
authorities around you in coping with hostile authorities. So I think Hamill may have had the similar experience and they all had their own way of, of resolving the ethical dilemma of, of the tensions between what one would like to do and what one felt obliged to do. Yeah, those preservation instincts yeah. are cultivated. Well, that was an incredibly interesting anecdote. And perhaps you'd indulge me with some more behind the scenes before we move on. And that is specifically with the tension that exists in the book. Pearson versus his perceived cloud of intellectuals causing him and the church uh, so much uh, danger. Um, what did what did Horn think about Pearson? How did he relate to Pearson? How did he survive Pearson? Horn didn't have a great deal to do with Pearson personally, so he was protected in that way. Um, he didn't have the direct connection that that Hamill had with him, um, but he went through a a kind of a transition with Pearson. I don't know whether it was because um, the previous president, Ruben Figueroa, had also been German, <laughs> that Horn felt that he'd been too much of a middle of the road person, but he, he felt that Figueroa hadn't, hadn't been very um, energetic about pushing things. Although I'm surprised at that because um, Figueroa had done a lot to push the development of the, the universities. So in a sense, Horn was looking forward to Pearson coming on. But then when he discovered that Pearson was preoccupied with only evangelism, with, with a superficial approach to understanding things, and with holding on to old perspectives regardless, then he, he became rather disillusioned um, and, and felt that the church wasn't being helped at all by by Pearson. He was guarded in what he said in public, but it's it's from Horn's diary that we get this perspective of the faculty board meeting at Andrews, where you've got on one evening Pearson saying, hold on, hold fast, don't give anything up, and <laughs> Hamill saying, on the other hand, unless we are going to progress and reshape things, we'll not survive. And Horn could see the difference between these two. And I think we get more of an understanding of Horn's attitude to Pearson by the way he was sympathetic to the way Hamill had to deal with, with Pearson. He advised Hamill on how to, to cope with, with Pearson and the pressures. The one, one comment I think where he was really quite disillusioned with Pearson is where he saw these petrified logs in the Sequoia National Park and was aware that they took us thousands of years back beyond the traditional Usher chronology. And he writes in his diary, I can only imagine what Pearson would do with evidence like this. He would just close his eyes and refuse to acknowledge the facts in front of him. What can you do with a leader like that? <laughs> so. Um, Great quote. Yeah. So that, that's, that's probably the most specific um, thing. Um, another um, 
dilemma that Horn faced was he was a member of the Committee on Daniel that had been convened by Figura to try and sort out the problems. And he was very much aware of the uh, exegetical issues in Daniel, that we couldn't arrive at our normal traditional outcomes of interpretation um, on an exegetical basis. He was arguing that we, the only way we could resolve that problem was by to see that that's where Alan White had led us. <laughs> and yet he knew that Alan White wasn't an authority on doctrine or on history. So that for him was just a, an unresolvable problem. But he appreciated Heppenstall's attempts to resolve things. He saw the implications of Heppenstall's theology that somehow at the heart he felt by suggesting that sin was not actually transferred to the sanctuary through the sacrifice, that that somehow hollowed out the inside of our sanctuary doctrine in ways that we hadn't thought about. And when he heard Heppenstall talk about that, Horn's response was, well, what's left of the doctrine of the sanctuary in the investigative judgment, <laughs> if, if that's the approach? And he understood it, um, but tried to resolve it as Cottrell did by saying, well, we've got to rely on Ellen White for that understanding, knowing that that couldn't be sustained either. So I think that was a problem that he lived with that he just couldn't resolve and still valued the church because of its contribution. Its contribution that it was making through archaeology and discoveries and health and education. And he held on to hope. He, he really held on to the hope of, a, of an eschatos. So, yeah. Well, that's a really uh, helpful portrait that you paint of a complicated uh, Adventist legend, uh, somebody who was contributing both uh, his mind and but also his uh, his whole uh, life to this organization and its institutions. He celebrated his fiftieth. Uh, the 50th anniversary of his baptism. <laughs> wow. When was that? In 1974. And he recalled how he'd been baptized at the beginning because he wanted to go to college. No other reason. And he'd mm -hmm. always been an Adventist. So that's the thing Adventists do. Yeah. Then a little later, he went to Newbold and discovered that he needed to be an Adventist by conviction. It still wasn't an evangelical kind of conversion experience, he tells us. Mm. But he became convinced that the way to be saved was by believing everything that Adventists taught. Mm -hmm. So he was that kind of an Adventist for years. Mm -hmm. And then very consciously in his 50th recollection from the day he was baptized, he, he said, you know, I've, I've grown and I'm thankful that the Lord has given me more liberal and broader views of things than what I started out with. I'm too old to fight for the continuing liberalization of the doctrines, but it's going to happen anyway. It, it's inevitable. It will happen as time goes on. And I'm committed to the church. <laughs> so it's a very interesting set of reflections that he has on, on his own relationship and his confidence in mm. providence in his own life and that God was somehow leading this church, which is so precious to us all. Indeed. He's uh, also a bit of a prophet then because he knew that doctrines would continue need to need broadening and liberalization. 
over time. You know, you've um, written many books, biographies, um, and histories, and this book has been a really fun read for me personally because I had heard about these sort of things. I hadn't lived through them like many of our kind of spectrum friends, uh, but it really did give me a sense of what many of my mentors had experienced and helped me to understand them more, understand my own parents' history in greater detail and the kind of pressures that they grew up under in Adventism. Yet it also is a history that applies in so many ways today because not everything has been as broadened and liberalized and as the discussion is still not open and we still, uh, many church uh, workers have to be adroit politically in the, in the way that they navigate their beliefs publicly and privately and express them. So you've written a history that's incredibly newsworthy uh, for our times. And I just say that to congratulate you, but also because I, I think it's important for histories to help us understand the past and the present and prepare us in some way for the future. Um, as you look back on this book, can you talk about what writing it did for you as a as a historian and also as an Adventist uh, scholar? Yeah, that's a thoughtful question, um, Alexander. I I enjoyed writing the book. I, I must say that. And there were many aha moments for me as I wrestled with the materials. Um, because I too had had lived through many of, of the events from the 60s. I, I finished my education in the later 60s at Avondale um, and, and grew up during an era of much debate where people were hurt because they had been outspoken, um, both on the right and the left in the church. Um, sure. I... I Remember in my home church, <laughs> when Brinsmead and his followers were very active, and one outspoken person was picked up bodily by the deacons and taken out of the church, and it had to be foot, feet first. So I, so I was led to understand. <laughs> I don't know what text they were following in the Bible to, that made them do that. But I they were <laughs> under instruction. So I, I've. Um, kind of experienced some of those those tensions. And for me, reading the materials, the Pearson correspondence, and then being able to triangulate with the correspondence and with official minutes and magazines, the inside perspective from Horn's diary, that gave me a real sense of this was authentic. You know, this is this is really happened like this. Hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so that, that was insightful for me. At times it was depressing and discouraging um, because, wow, we're going through all of this again. Mm -hmm. um, isn't, isn't there a, a straightforward way 
forward on this? Does the, the line have to be so zigzaggy? Yeah. <laughs> or does it have to be more like the tide coming in? You know, you've got a waves washing back before the next creep up the beach. Um, but in that sense, I think the, the book gave me also a good deal of hope. Um, I had to limit myself in the book and there were, there were things that, that could have been talked about. There were other themes that would have required extra chapters. <laughs> um, and maybe there was a volume two to be written. I, I don't know. Um, thinking about that, but, um, what it, what it does for me in terms of reassurance is that even though at the moment we seem to be going backwards, there's a, there's an effort to try and not just have continuity as we go forwards, but to actually not go forwards at all, but, but just either stay still or go back to, to what we've lost. And I, I think that that's really dangerous. Um, and I, I hope that this book helps people to see that even though it's a difficult journey and painful at times, there is a way forward. That, that greater understanding of truth, deeper insights about our teaching, looking at the very essence of and the heart and soul of our, our essential teachings is a way that will help us to position and meet the needs of, of a new generation in the future. So, you know, I've said this before, I'm an incurable optimist, um, and maybe that by temperament, but also as a historian, I think. And that's not saying I'm a glib believer in progress, but but I am confident somehow in the mystery of it all, you can't document God did this in the church, but somehow I, I as a believer, I, I'm confident that, that God's got a hand in all of this somehow and somewhere, and uh, the future is bright. Mm. I share Horn's convictions on that. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much for talking with all of us today and sharing your hope in a bright future. Thank you, Alexander. It's been a joy to talk, talk with you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.